Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you all enjoy, and as well, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the conspiracy theories about Adolf Hitler's death. So, conspiracy theories about the death of Adolf Hitler, dictator of Germany from 1933 to 1945, contradict the accepted fact that he committed suicide in the Fuhrer bunker on the 30th of April 1945. Now, this is stemming from Soviet disinformation. Most of these theories hold that Hitler and his wife, Eva Brunn, survived and escaped from Berlin, with some asserting that he went to South America. In post-war years, the US Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, and Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, investigated some of the reports without lending them credence. The revelation in 2009 that a skull in the Soviet archives long dubiously claimed to be Hitler's actually belonged to a woman has helped fuel conspiracy theories. While the claim have received some exposure in popular culture, they are regarded by historians and scientific experts as disproven fringe theories. Eyewitnesses, blood samples, and Hitler's dental remains demonstrate that he died in his bunker in Berlin in 1945. Now, I have a problem with that because of all the research I've done on Adolf Hitler himself, Hitler doesn't strike me as the type of guy that would have just laid down and said, okay, I've lost the war, I'm gonna pull a bullet through my head and Eva Brunn's gonna swallow poison and commit suicide. I don't see Hitler is the type of person that would just say, okay, I give up on the war, the war's completely lost, and I'm just going to end it all. Because to me, Hitler was very prideful, and even in the days when he knew that he was losing the war, especially from 43 onwards, he was sort of very fanatical in so far as saying, well, we're not going to lose, we're not going to lose, we are going to win, we are going to continue winning. And he had this kind of fanatical delusions of grandeur that even though he was fighting a war on two fronts with Russia, America, and the UK, he still felt that he was going to somehow win. I mean, you've got a million strong army in Russia that's coming after you. You've got the combined efforts of, the, of America, Canada, and and uh, the UK, the British. Plus, you've got the Australians and the New Zealanders. You've got all these people that are coming after you, and the only people that are really on your side are the Japanese, and you did have the Italians at one point. And it's kind of like, well, you're not going to win this war. It doesn't matter what you do. I mean, you're not going to win. After he went to war with Russia and broke the the non, uh, what was it, the, the pact that they made, because Hitler and Stalin made a pact, where they, I think it was a non-aggression pact or something like that, and then Hitler decided that he was going to break the pact that they had, and then he launched, I think it was Operation Barbarossa. Once he went to war with Russia, basically the war was over for Hitler, because now you're fighting a war on two fronts, and you've only got so many men in your army, it's, it's illogical that you're going to win. Unfortunately for Hitler, he just had this delusions, this fanatical delusions of grandeur that he was going to win, even though it was basically at that point practically impossible. Unless he could somehow conjure up millions and millions of soldiers to face the millions that were coming for him and his army, there was no way he was going to win. But at the same time, Hitler was the type of guy that's like, I'm not going to lose. Even in the very last days of the war, he's like, no, we are going to win. We've lost so many battles, but we're going to come back stronger again and again. You know, like he just was so enthralled in his own mind that he thought that he was going to win when there was no chance in hell. He just had delusions of grandeur that he was going to win when that was never, ever going to happen. So I don't see him being the type of guy that'd be like, oh, okay, you know, I thought I was going to win, 
and I was so positive I was going to win. Oh, I'm going to lose now, so to give my enemies what they want, I'm going to put a bullet through my head. Because in Hitler's mind, in his fanatical, almost narcissistic mind, he's never wrong. He can't lose. So for him to admit defeat, for him to commit suicide, for him to admit defeat, would be giving him what his enemies want. But if he faked his death and got away with it, basically Hitler would have the last laugh and he would be like, well, you think I'm dead, but I'm really not. I'm the one that actually won. He who laughs last, laughs loudest. So the origins of this whole he did not commit suicide or the narrative that Hitler did not commit suicide, but instead escaped Berlin was first presented to the general public by Marshal Georgi Zhukov at a press conference on June 9th of 1945 on orders from Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. That month, 68% of Americans polled thought Hitler was still alive. When asked at the Potsdam conference in July of 1945 how Hitler had died, Stalin said he was either living in Spain or Argentina. In July of 1945, British newspapers repeated comments from a Soviet officer that a charred body discovered by the Soviets was a very poor double. American newspapers also repeated dubious quotes such as that of the Russian garrison commandant of Berlin who claimed that Hitler had gone into hiding somewhere in Europe. This disinformation propagated by Stalin's government has been a springboard for various conspiracy theories. Despite the official conclusion by Western powers and the consensus of historians that Hitler killed himself on the 30th of April 1945, it even caused a minor resurgence in Nazism during the Allied occupation of Germany. In 1945, Franz Seur quoted Otto Abetz, Nazi ambassador to Vichy, France, during World War II as saying that Hitler was not dead. The first detailed investigation by Western powers began that November after Dick White, then head of counterintelligence in the British sector of Berlin, had their agent Hugh Trevor Roper investigate the matter to counter the Soviet claims. His findings that Hitler and Braun had died by suicide in Berlin were written in a report in 1946 and published in a book the next year. According to the case, Trevor Roper reflected, the desire to invent legends and fairy tales is greater than the love of truth, end quote. In April 1947, again, 45% of Americans polled thought Hitler was still alive. In 1946, this was a really weird thing that happened, but an American minor and Baptist preacher apparently began sending out a series of letters under the pen name Furia No. 1, claiming to be the living Hitler and to have escaped with Braun to Kentucky. He alleged that tunnels were being dug to Washington, D.C., and that he would engage armies, nuclear bombs, and invisible spaceships to take over the universe. The writer, surprisingly, was able to raise up to $15,000, which in today's currency in 2020 was over $140,000, promising lofty incentives to his supporters before being arrested on charges of mail fraud in mid-1956. In March of 1948, newspapers around the world reported the account of former German Lieutenant Arthur F. Mackensen, who claimed that on the 5th of May 1945, during the Soviet bombardment of Berlin, he, Hitler, Braun, and Martin Bormann had escaped the Führer bunker in tanks. The group allegedly flew from Tempelhof Airport to Tom Denmark, where Hitler gave a speech and took a flight with Braun to the coast. In a May 1948 issue of the Italian magazine Tempo, author Emil Ludwig wrote that a double could have been cremated in Hitler's place, allowing him to flee by submarine to Argentina. Presiding judge at the, and I am going to butcher this, I do apologize, Einstandsgruppen trial at Nuremberg, Michael Masmano wrote in his 1950 book that such theories were about as rational as to say that Hitler was carried away by angels. End quote. Citing a lack of evidence, 
the confirmations of Hitler's dental remains and the fact that Ludwig had expressly ignored the presence of witnesses in the bunker. In his refutation of Mackensen's account, Masmano cites a subsequent story of his in which the lieutenant allegedly flew on May 9th to Malaga, Spain, where he was attacked by 30 lightning fighters over Marseilles, despite the war having ended in Europe, purportedly killing all 33 passengers beside himself. From 1951 to 1972, the National Police Gazette, an American tabloid-style magazine, ran a series of stories alleging Hitler's survival. Now, at the end of 1945, Stalin ordered a second commission to investigate Hitler's death, in part to investigate rumours of Hitler's survival. On the 30th of May 1946, part of a skull was found, ostensibly in the crater where Hitler's remains had been exhumed. Additionally, blood samples from the sofa and wall of Hitler's study were taken to confirm that it matched his blood type, which was type A. The skull remnant consists of part of the occipital bone and part of both parietal bones. That n- The nearly complete parietal bone has a bullet hole, apparently an exit wound. Now, in 2009, on an episode of of history's mystery quest, University of Connecticut archaeologist and bone specialist Mike Bellatoni examined the skull fragment, which Soviet officials had believed to be Hitler's. According to Bellatoni, the bones seemed very thin for a male, and the sutures where the skull plates came together seemed to correspond to someone under 40. A small piece detached from the skull was DNA tested, as was blood from Hitler's sofa. The skull was determined to be that of a woman, providing fodder for conspiracy theorists, while the blood was confirmed to belong to a male. Neither former Soviet nor Russian officials have claimed the skull was the main piece of evidence, instead citing jawbone fragments and two dental bridges found in May of 1945. The items were shown to two associates of Hitler's personal dentist, Hugo Blaschke, his assistant, Kath Ham Horsman, and longtime dental technician Fritz Eichmann. They confirmed the de- that the dental remains were Hitler's and Braun's, as did Blaschke in later statements. According to Ada Petrova and Peter Watson, Hugh Thomas disputed these dental remains in his 1990 book, but also speculated that Hitler probably died in the bunker after being strangled by his valet, Heinz Lynch. They noted that even Dr. Thomas admits that there is no evidence to support this theory. Ian Kershaw wrote, The theories of Hugh Thomas that Hitler was strangled by Lynch and that the female body burned was not that of Ivor Braun, who escaped from the bunker, belong in fairyland. In 2017, French forensic pathologist Philip Charlier confirmed that teeth on one of the jawbone fragments were in perfect agreement with an x-ray taken of Hitler in 1944. This investigation of the teeth by the French team, the results of which were reported in the European Journal of Internal Medicine in May of 2018, found that the dental remains were definitely Hitler's teeth. According to Charlier, there is no possible doubt. Our study proves that Hitler died in 1945 in Berlin. FBI documents declassified by the 1998 Nazi War Crimes Disclosure Act, which began to be released online by the early 2010s, contain a number of alleged sightings of Hitler in Europe, South America, and the United States, some of which assert that he changed his appearance via plastic surgery or shaving off his moustache, which he was very well known for that little moustache that he had on his on his top lip. The documents state that the alleged sightings of Hitler could not be verified. As historian Richard J. Evans notes, the FBI was obliged to document such claims no matter how erroneous or deranged they were. Now, some works claim that Hitler and Braun did not commit suicide, but actually escaped to Argentina. A declassified CIA document dated 3rd of October 1955 reported claims made by a self-proclaimed former German SS trooper named Philip Citron that claimed that Hitler was still alive and that he left Colombia for Argentina around January of 1955. Enclosed with the document was an alleged photograph of Citron and a person he claimed to be Hitler. On the back of the photo was written Adolf Schachtelmeier and the year 1954. The report also states that neither the contact who reported his conversations with Citron nor the CIA station was in a position to give 
an intelligent evaluation of the information. The station chief's superiors told him that enormous efforts could be expended on this matter with remote possibilities of establishing anything concrete, and the investigation was thereafter dropped. Then we come to Grey Wolf. So, the 2011 book Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler by British authors Simon Dudston and Gerard Williams, and the 2014 docudrama filmed by Williams based on it, suggests that a number of U-boats took certain Nazis and Nazi loot to Argentina, where the Nazis were supported by future President Juan Perón, who I mentioned before, who, with his wife Evita, had been receiving money from the Nazis for some time. As claims received by the FBI stated, Hitler allegedly arrived in Argentina, first staying at Hacindia San Ramon, east of San Carlos de Bariloche, then moved to a Bavarian-style mansion at Analco, a remote and barely accessible spot at the northwest end of Newell Hepoi Lake, close to the Chilean border. I do apologize if I get all these names wrong and I butcher these names. I, I'm not very good at pronunciation of some of these names. Supposedly, Eva Braun left Hitler around 1954 and moved to Neuquin with their daughter Ursula, and Hitler died in February of 1962. This theory of Hitler's flight to Argentina has been dismissed by historians, including Guy Walters. He has described Dutson and Williams' theory as rubbish, adding, and I quote, There is no substance to it at all. It appears to be the deluded fantasies of conspiracy theorists and has no place whatsoever in historical research, end quote. Walters contended that it is simply impossible to believe that so many people could keep such a grand-scale deception so quiet, and says that no serious historian would give the story any credibility. Historian Richard Evans has many misgivings about the book and subsequent film. For example, he notes that the story about Ursula is merely secondhand hearsay evidence without identification or cooperation. Evans also notes that Dutson and Williams made extensive use of a book Hitler Murio en la Argentina by Manuel Monasterio, while the author later admitted included made up strange ramblings and speculation. Evans contends that Monasterio's book is not to be regarded as a reliable source. In the end, Evans dismissed the survival stories of Hitler as fantasies. Now, I really don't know that I could really quite say that with any conviction because Gerard Williams has stated in several interviews that he has done, he has actually, I think he did one with Lad Bible, which I'll play soon, that he actually did a lot of research into what had actually happened to Hitler. Like, he went overseas, he went to Argentina, he spent years and years doing research on his book. So it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of unfair to say that he really doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, he has done research, he's talked to eyewitnesses, he has people, like, as he will go into in the little clip that I'm going to play, I mean, he actually spoke with people that claimed to have seen Hitler long after he supposedly died. He had two eyewitnesses threatened with, he had one that said that, that he had one that told him that she had threats made against her about her house being burned down and her children being killed and her being killed. And there was another one where Mein Kampf was dated 1955, stating that the Gestapo was still around and they were going to come and hunt her down. So if all of these conspiracy theories were just that, conspiracy theories, why would people still be making threats of violence against people and saying, you know, shut up and don't tell anyone what you know, otherwise we'll come after you. Honestly, to me, Gerard Williams comes across as a hell of a credible guy. Like, you listen to his interviews and it's not as if he's talking out of his ass. He really knows what he's talking about. I've listened to so many interviews where you have these so-called people that claim they know what they're talking about and they just come off as not knowing anything. Whereas Gerard Williams comes across as very well-educated, very well-researched in what he talks about. He knows what he's talking about. He has researched Research the book to such a great degree that he knows everything of what he's talking about and he does not come off to me as a type of guy that would just talk out of his ass. He honestly, I mean, I love listening to his interviews because 
you can tell that he's very passionate about what he's talking about, and he's very passionate about the subject, which, you know, if you spent years and years investigating something that you believe to be true, as, as he has, then obviously you'd be very passionate as well. And I mean, to just kind of dismiss what he says so out of hand by saying, oh, well, they read this book that had ramblings and mutterings in it, and there's no evidence, and it's all fanciful conspiracy fodder. Well, I don't really necessarily think you can say that. On one hand, yeah, there, there isn't really any credible proof that Hitler survived the bunker and survived the war and didn't die in the bunker. But then again, on the other hand, I'm saying that there's no proof that he didn't escape. There's no proof that he did escape. There's no proof that he didn't. As I say, it's one of those debates where you really are not going to win. I mean, you're going to have people like Gerard Williams that are going to steadfastly, staunchly deny that Hitler died in the bunker. And you're going to have those that are going to staunchly deny that he escaped from the bunker. Hi, yeah, I'm Gerard Williams, um, author with Simon Dunson of a book called Grey Wolf, The Escape of Adolf Hitler. Um, I've been a television journalist with some excursions into print for the last 40 years. Um, he shoots himself in the head, probably at the same time as crunching a cyanide pill. Ava Brown takes a cyanide pill on a, on a sofa in their personal um, quarters. And the bodies are then found by one of his valets, and the bodies are then taken upstairs, covered in petrol, the petrol is set fire to, and the bodies burn to ashes. Yeah. Well, that doesn't work because you need to get a body to something like 3000 C in a crematorium before it goes to ashes. When the Russians arrive, they find no bodies like this. They do a bit later, funnily enough, but they don't find any bodies at the time. And the BBC reporter Thomas Cadet, who's there, says the Russians have been given no bodies that they believe to be that of Adolf Hitler. There is no mention of Ava Brown at all. And yet over there are Joseph and Magda Goebbels and they've been covered with petrol and they've been satellite. And you can still tell it's Joey the Crip as they used to call him, and Magda. We have the reports from Captain Peter Baumgart. Baumgart's arrested as part of his defense. He explains his war history and everything else. And at the end of the war, he flew Hitler and Ava and a number of other people to Tonda in Denmark. He sees them board another plane and fly them off to Royce, just outside Barcelona. General Franco is very tight with Hitler, and so he supplies an aircraft of the Spanish Air Force, which flies them to Fuerteventura, to Villa Winter, and from Villa Winter they board a convoy of three submarines. When they get to the coast, they stay overnight at a ranch called Morama, and then on Morama, and it's still there, at the Estancia, is an airfield, and they fly from that airfield to a place just outside San Carlos de Bariloche, which is owned by the Nazi ambassador to Chile. The birth of the Nazi party happens in Argentina. Uh, there's a couple called Ida Eichhorn and her husband who run a hotel called Hotel Eden. Now this is meant to be as luxurious as the Titanic was. The Eichhorns funded Hitler in the 20s from the takings of this hotel and pumped money into the Nazi party. And if it hadn't been for the Eichhorns, the Nazi party could never have happened. So the roots of Nazism are as deep in Argentina as they ever were in Nazi Germany. Places like San Carlos de Bariloche, I mean, I've woken up there, looked out of the window and thought I was in Bavaria. The, the, the extent, the level of German penetration, Nazi penetration into Argentina is incredible, just incredible. And if they hadn't been funded by the Archons, they may never have come to power. There are a number of distinctly propagandist lies about Adolf Hitler. The Parkinson side of things, that he was really unwell, is based on one shot 
which lasts for about four seconds at Berchtesgaden, of him with his right hand behind his back and the right hand's doing that. It's not an incipient sign of Parkinson's. If you look at the pictures shot on March the 20th, 1945, of a man allegedly Adolf Hitler handing out medals to the Hitler Youth, it's not Hitler. We've had him facially, electronically tested. The man is not Hitler. The last pictures you see of Hitler, he's quite fit. When the double comes in, he's nowhere near as fit. And people notice a marked deterioration in Adolf Hitler in the last couple of days in the bunker. And they're told it is Hitler. Remember, these are oath-sworn Nazis. An SS Gruppenführer tells you something is the way it is. It is the way it is. You do not dream of questioning it or you will be shot. Martin Bormann is the man behind all this. Bormann approaches Alan Dulles, who's head of the security intelligence operation OSS in Switzerland. And he says, look, we've lost. He says, it's now only a question of time and we need to come to an agreement where we give you something and in return you give us our freedom. And we take quite a bit with us. And yet, for everybody, Martin Bormann's dead outside the post office in Berlin in 45. He's not. It's interesting enough that Martin Bormann and Nuremberg is charged with crimes against humanity. Adolf Hitler never is. They can't find Bormann's body. They've got no proof that Hitler's body's there. But Hitler's never been charged with a single crime. Why? If we'd had a body, yeah, okay, he's dead. End of story. And you got Eisenhower, Zhukov, Stalin all saying, we have no proof that this man is dead. But the International War Crimes Commission at Nuremberg ignores that. I don't like it because I'm, I'm uncomfortable about it with the idea of the deep state, you know? But there are two Americas. There is the military industrial complex, and up until Mr. Trump, there was the decent side of America. And Alan Dulles and John J. McCloy were part very much of that military industrial complex. Can you imagine what a lot of returning veterans would have done if they'd found out that the American shadow government had done a deal. You might think this is all just completely crazy, right? But I've spoken to eyewitnesses. I've walked on the Estancia. At one stage, an Argentine crew was filming there because they'd heard this story as well. And the woman said, what are you filming that house for? And they said, well, isn't that the one that Hitler stayed in after the war? She went, no, 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 it's that one over there. Jaw drop. And you get stories like this all the time. Sometimes they're secondhand. Sometimes they're third hand. But I've interviewed, I suppose now, about 10 people um, who met him personally in Argentina, post-war. I've had two eyewitnesses threatened with death threats in Argentina. Um, one who was threatened with having their house burnt down and their children killed. And then another lady who said she had pictures and a signed copy of Mein Kampf dated 1958. She shut up on us completely because she got a telephone calling saying the Gestapo is still active and if you continue calling, talking to these people, you will die. Unless the story was true or had any basis in fact, why would you threaten people with death? You have to understand the, um, the depth of Nazi penetration into Argentina. Um, these are all sworn Nazis, and they swore to protect the life of Adolf Hitler, and they continued to do so. You know, he didn't wander around the streets going, hello, see the moustache, you know, none of that happened. He's in protected compounds. He's in protected compounds surrounded by former SS soldiers. He's got a complete link into Bormann and Bormann then into Peron. There is a mountain division of Argentine soldiers being trained by the Nazis in San Carlos de Bariloche, providing immediate rapid reaction forces to anything there. 
they had billions, they had country buying money. Um, he had personally a great deal of money, but the Nazi organization had country buying amounts of money. And they did, they bought Argentina. I think what Hitler hoped for most was the development of the wonder weapons that he'd been looking to develop at the end of World War II. So the nuclear ambitions went astray. Um, Hitler was getting more and more ill. Eva left him in the middle of 50s. He has a series of heart attacks. And then on February 13th at 1962, at three o'clock in the afternoon, attended by his personal physician, Dr. Otto Lehmann, he dies. Tormented, demented, and betrayed. And that's a great way for him to go. First of all, I have to say it's not a theory. Simple as that. I don't do conspiracy theories. Oh, I've been called everything from a conspiracy theorist to a nutter. The whole Hitler died in the bunker, kill himself, over around killed himself as well, has become so accepted. When you even vaguely try and challenge it, it's like you're challenging the existence of God to a Catholic priest. Historians like to follow other historians and accept their work because it's been peer-reviewed. I like to follow journalists who are actually on the ground doing it at the time. Prove me wrong. Prove us wrong. Prove the research wrong. And then, you know, maybe we could have a conversation over a beer about it. But in the meantime, I know what I know. I think I know what happened to Adolf Hitler, but whether we'll ever have any hard, conclusive smoking gun evidence is something I don't know. I think that it was so important for both the Nazis and the Americans not for there to be any evidence of Hitler's body, that the body would have probably been cremated and then the ashes scattered somewhere in the Andes, so you'd never find any evidence. Governments are still very secretive about this story. They refuse to release files. The truth is out there, to quote the X-Files. Whether or not we'll ever get at it is something I don't know. Do the research. Read the book. Um, read the other books on the subject as well. And there are other books on the subject. And once you've done all that research, which will take you some years, because it does, then make your own mind up about it. But for me, I cannot just blindly follow a story which I know not to be true. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You know, there'd be a lot less if this was bollocks. <laughs>
that just finished airing. What's the thought process behind this? Is it, is it legit? Because yeah. a lot of people are like, finding Hitler. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah. They found Hitler. He died. Yeah, I mean... Not really? We don't know. Right. That, that's the... That's, I mean, this isn't like ancient aliens. This is... We... They declassified a bunch of documents. Um, they both the Israelis, um, the British, and the Germans and Americans in the past twenty years have been de- consistently declassifying documents. And there were a bunch of specifically FBI documents that we were spending millions and millions of dollars actively searching for Hitler after the war. As was really yeah, like millions of dollars. Like Hoover was like, no, 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 no. send more FBI agents to South America. Um, to North Africa, go to the Canary Islands, go to Spain, trying to find out where this guy went. Tons of real FBI documents with real leads, with real informants, some hand uh, or some first eye accounts saying that they physically. So anyways, that's the show is us trying to find out, sift through reality and, um, the fiction of the the allure, the mist, the mystery of that asshole. So what's the official story? The official story is that he killed himself, right? Yep. yep. He killed himself in the bunker with yeah. Ava Braun. Yep. And is there any photographic evidence of his death or anything? Yeah. So what the Russians got the body and they got his skull. Um, and when they brought it back to Moscow, nobody has ever been able to independently verify who and what this body is. They let one genetic test occur and the body with the bullet holes that they said was Hitler and have said, and that's the narrative, that's the story, that's all the eyewitness accounts that are even in the vicinity of collaborating with each other um, and cooperating each other's testimony. Like the closest version, because none of it seems to be very accurate, is that, okay, here's Hitler's skull and when they did the genetic testing, it's that of a 35-year-old woman. So they're like, oh, well, this isn't Hitler. But they've said for the past 80 years that this is Hitler. So, okay, first, before we start throwing stones at Russia, let's go back to 1945, April, um, in Berlin. You have the Allies coming in, wrecking shop, dropping bombs, blowing everything up they can in every single which way. You have the Russians coming in from the opposite direction. They don't even have enough guns to arm all their soldiers. So if they have 200 guys they have, or 200,000 guys, they have 100,000 guns. If the guy in front of you dies, you just pick up his gun. That's what's happening in April of 1945 in Berlin. So the noose is tightening. There is no – I mean it is chaos, anarchy, pandemonium. This I mean you couldn't – this is hell on earth is Berlin 1945. So I don't know if you could get a real story, a real, the way that we do it now where we have, you know, this forensic experts that come in and um, document everything. And we look at all the different testimonies, say, this is, this is exactly how it's just not, it's not CSI. This is 1945 Berlin. It's crazy. So I don't so know. So there's, there was no like, absolute proof no and a lot of nazis did escape and go to south america the majority of anyone with power the nuremberg trials were a not a winch hunt but it was to close a chapter so we could start moving forward with communism that's what it was the the threat of fascism the threat of hitler the the Mm -hmm. threat of killing all the jews the threat of world domination by the nazis that threat's gone What's the next threat? 
Communism. It's communism. Right. So that had to be a closed chapter of our history so we could focus our resources and our efforts to what inevitably was going to, I mean, the wall goes up. We have right. East and West Berlin. You know, we're already looking at Korea. I mean, this this happens almost overnight. Right, very quickly. You know, when Patton's like, no, no, homies, we need to go all the way to Ma- Moscow. This is not the end of our war. And we didn't listen to him. Um, we then have been, you know, fighting communism for the past 75 years. So the the ones with power that went to South America, I know a bunch of them went to Argentina, uh-huh. uh, but they think uh, they went to uh, Honduras and a few other places. Mm-hmm. Where where do they think they wound up? So what you had in South America, both Chile and Argentina back to back had fascist regime, regimes. You had uh, Perón, who was part of the Nazi party starting all the way back into the mid 30s. He's the president of Argentina. So the Red Cross... Um, they were facilitate. There was about three different rat lines that guys were able to successfully get out of Europe into South America, um, and th- these are. There's no question that we're talking thousands, if not tens of thousands, of high-ranking Nazis made it there. Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands, and I'm not talking like little soldiers. I'm talking high-ranking Nazis. Officers, guys like Joseph Mengele and Adolf Eichmann. I mean, these are the most disgusting, despicable humans to exist at the time. If Hitler, if Hitler is dead, Joseph Mengele is the guy that would take syringes full of blue ink and inject them. Oh, and oh, you have blue eyes, Joe, or you have no. brown eyes. Yeah. Let, me, let me see if I can make them blue. Oh, wow. And then take twins and start torturing them to see if one would feel the pain. That's Joseph Mengele. I mean, that's the guy that then in South America was helping... Um, high-ranking Argentinians have abortions, and he set up... Um, have you seen the movie Colonia? No. About Colonia Dignidad? Which is... Uh, if you're listening right now, I almost warn you not to Google it, because it, it is... It, it was a torture camp that was started by Joseph Schaefer, a Nazi, and Joseph Mengele, the, the doctor of death that escaped trial in Nuremberg and made it um, at the behest of Perón into Argentina, he set up the hospital at Colonia Dignidad, which was another safe house, safe haven for more Nazis in South America. Um, Golda Meir and David and Ben-Gurion, the presidents of Israel, um, they, ha- they took the gloves off and they were just sending assassins to try to find these people and kill them. Um, but what you got in South America were isolated German only communities. You could go into Bariloche, Argentina, and you know I'd be like, "Buenos dias, amigos," and they're like, "Guten Morgen." I'm like, "Oh, yeah, I, 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 I meant good morning." Yeah, sorry, it's 2017, right? I thought we spoke Spanish here. So, in 2017, you were there and they were speaking German. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. Well, I, I'm. I don't look very. I might look more European than right. I do. So it's just them seeing me walking down the street and be like. Wow. Yeah. And there's tons of communities. I mean, if you go to Colonia Dignidad, which is now called Via Bavaria, the villa, Bavarian village, it is uh, only German. Wow. In the center of Chile, in the mountains of Chile. Like, you, there's no Spanish being, being spoken there. It is exclusively German. And these are the descendants of Nazis. Powerful Nazis. Holy shit. And this is going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. What are these communities like? I mean, what's their ideology? Are they... I mean, they're pretty white. Yeah, but are they like... <laughs> I mean, are they... Do they espouse Nazi values or... Not openly. So, Colonia Dignidad, uh, 
if you look at the second generation, there's a bunch of, so it was a huge problem for Chile that they tried to hide for years. And they, they got so much power from the torturing that they did at Colonia Dignidad on a whole bunch of other pr- high-ranking South American dictators that they are almost untouchable. And this this is, I mean, you, you're, you'd blow your mind if you look into this, Joe. You'd, you'd love it. But um, the second generation, the kids, like the grandkids, sometimes they're even more fanatical than the original generation. Have you ever seen this? Where like if somebody's away from, like when you travel abroad, man, it's so cool to like to get into the culture and get into the food and get into the, like you're dancing the, this style and you you love the flag and you're like, oh, I'm gonna go to a soccer game because we don't go to soccer games in America. And then I'm gonna go, but then maybe after like two months, you kind of miss home, you know? And then like a year, like you really miss home. And then 10 years, like you really, really miss home. And you see the same thing in the United States where it's not really a, perfect assimilation. It's not the melting pot where you see generations that are espousing to be more like their ethnic heritage than they are American. You know, they're flying the Irish flag and like, I'm, I'm Irish. Um, well, it's just times a thousand with these communities because they're exclusively German. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Kind of weird. So exclusively German and really missing home. Yeah. Yeah. So 70 years later, the, second generations I was talking about, um, some of them came to the United States and were high ranking white supremacists that are now in jail in prison for their racial crimes. And they came out of South America. They came out of Colonia Dignidad. They came out of Bariloche. They came out of Cordoba. They came out of Misiones. They came out of, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Crazy. So that's the show hunting Hitler. Fucking A, man. To so trip. How many people are we talking about all told in South America that came, come out of this? I mean, tens of thousands went there, but how many German communities and what, how big are they? Yeah, we maybe have 50 German communities. 50? <laughs> how many people, if you had to guess? A few hundred thousand. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> a few hundred thousand yeah. descendants of Nazis. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And man, it's weird when you walk into somebody's parlor and it's like you're stepping back in time into Europe. Like I'm walking in, it's, it's 2017 and I'm walking in Buenos Aires, Argentina into somebody's parlor and all of the tile is European and all of the style and all the art is very German. You know, we, we have like deers and you know, like not, not like red stags. I, we're talking... German everything, things that Hitler loved. And that's the style and that's everything. And then they come out and like with white gloves, they're holding their grandpa, their grandfather's um, memory box. And inside of it are his war medals from, you know, when he was in the SS or when he was, and it is the respect, the I don't even know the reverence. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's like whole, like it's the it's like this is a gift from the Pope that they're holding in their hands. White gloves. No, I can't. For, first of all, Tim can't touch it. That's, but I can appreciate it. And then they tell me the story of every single one of these things and how he got there, and how he then went and worked for the Buenos Aires News. You can't and, touch anything. No, they wouldn't. No, because I come. You're, you're dirty. I'm dirty. Dirty American. Look at these. This is. You're too brown. Yeah. Fuck, man. So we followed. The first two seasons, it was really just unraveling the rumors of what happened to Hitler. The third season, 
was my favorite because I actually got to do real work. They said, okay. I got the second season. I got to bring in more special forces guys, um, a CIA targeter, Nadia, um, who helped my unit kill Zarqawi in 2006. That This is the team that is now looking at real evidence, trying to figure out, okay, how did we find bin Laden? How did we find Zakar, Zarqawi? We looked at their associates and we looked at how they moved. We looked at how they communicated. We looked at what routes they were using to get to and from places. And then we just started tightening the noose. And that's exactly what we did in this third season was, okay, let's start following the Adolf Eichmanns. Let's start following the Joseph Mengele's and let's start following the Skorzenskis. Um, Hitler's personal bodyguard that was a colonel in the SS that went on to work for everybody after the war fighting. I mean, fascists do not like communists. So this guy was working for everybody to include the CIA fighting fascism in South America or fighting communism as a fascist in South America in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Whoa. Creepy stuff. Whoa. Yeah. So. So. Hunting Hitler. Are there any legitimate eyewitness accounts of Hitler in South America or, or potentially legitimate? Absolutely. Potentially. Whoa. Yep. I, eyewitness accounts. I saw him get off a boat. I saw him meet here. And if it was just some person saying it, it's almost meaningless. Right. But if you look at the context of who this person is, the wealth that they have that they shouldn't have, like, can, can you explain how you got so rich in two generations you know, like, okay, your grandpa got here from Germany in 1946. That's weird. Um, and and he, he, he's on a, a legitimate visa with an Argentinian passport. Also weird. Um, and now he's a war refugee that's now worth millions of dollars. How, how, does, this, how does this work? Um, so, but people, and then this is the hard part, people want to be connected to significant events. And especially in small rural areas of the world, um, developing areas like they want, there's so nothing, there's so little happening. They want to be attached to something massive. And like the fact that they saw a U-boat land on this beach and the pot, the hatch opened and you know, this, these cars were sitting there and they were doing Morse code and this guy gets off and he had this little mustache. You're like, well, for, but U-boats can't beach. That's not how that works, right, you know, right, and, right. and, but you know what they're trying to do. They just want to be connected. Yeah. So, and now we're removed 70 to 80 years from the facts. It, it has been painful to try to use real science, real investigative tools to try to sift through this lore, you know, what do you think happened? I mean, you've been, you've been studying this for how long now? Three years. Three years. Yeah. If you, if you had a guess, if you had like a million bucks, you got to put it on one side or another. Did he go there? Yeah. Whoa. I, Jesus Christ. I would say, man, it's, it's in that, that's the first time I've ever said it flat out like that. What, what, what I want to say is the way history is written is wrong. That that's, that's clear. There's no way that we can say he died on this day. This is what happened. Here is his body. And so that's what the physical proof is for sure. The woman that, that had, yeah. that they were saying was Hitler is definitely not Hitler. It was that, absolutely that's not. A fact. That's a fact. So they don't have Hitler's body. So then our other option was, okay, is it Ava Brahms? Did they just grab the wrong b- right. body? Right? right. So there are still descendants of 
of Ava and we tried to have them allow us to do it. Then we tried to go through like, um, they, and they can get DNA off of the skull. Yeah. There's meat on it. Or no, it's, it's like a tooth. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, um, but they wouldn't consent to it. So then we tried to do, you know, like where people have like the, the tree, mm-hmm. their ethnic tree. Yeah. What is those websites called? 23andMe? Yeah. yeah. There's like a bunch of them. Right. We tried to go that route, but... Um, they the, wouldn't consent to it. No. The Ava Bronze family. No. They just want it gone. They just don't want it. Yeah. yeah. They're yeah. super pissed that we even found them. I'm sure. Which was hard. Which was really hard. Just hold them down. Get them to spit in a bucket. Yeah. <laughs> the... Uh, <laughs> I know. I got... <laughs> I mean, or pull we their need trash to know. and pull yeah. stuff out of there. No, we I would to totally know. not do that. Definitely not do that. Um, but I mean, that's how they caught the Golden State Killer, right? It was off a of fuck cigarette butt. Yeah, they got DNA off a of cigarette butt. So history's wrong. Wow. To for it to be black and white like that. And fuck, man. And if and again, if you go back to 1945, um, we needed scientists. We needed every single German electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, aerospace, anything yeah. you're on the V2 program, you, you know, any, we want all of you. Cause now it's a race. It's a race. We have the bomb. Now we need delivery systems. Now we need to get to the moon. Now we need to, you know, like all of those things are real time. It's a war, yeah. a war of dollars and a war of science. And, um, we got all those scientists. Yeah. The Russians didn't. Well, they got some, some, not yeah. very many. Operation Paperclip was what what brought over the what Werner von Braun, who was when you talk to Jews that were in Berlin during the time that Werner von Braun was running his rocket program there, he would hang the five slowest Jews in front of the rocket factory in Berlin just to give everybody motivation to work harder. Yeah, it was the Simon Wiesenthal Center said that if Werner von Braun was alive today, they would prosecute him for crimes against humanity. Yeah. He was a Nazi, straight up Nazi. And people, there's apologists that say, no, 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 he was a scientist. He was forced into doing that. Like, that's like, okay, he's a Nazi. Yeah. There's photographs of him wearing Nazi garb, hanging out with Nazis. He, the, his rocket factory killed Jews. Like, this is, these are all undeniable facts. Except people the that, war ends and they're not Nazis right, anymore. Exactly. That's not how that works. Exactly. But they were, for, they were forgiven because they came over and contributed to our rocket program. I'm not that, I'm not that good of a human. I don't have yeah. that in me. I don't have that, like, okay, it's slippery, you're forgiven. Man. Now we come to the alleged doubles of Adolf Hitler. There are so many people online that either say that he did or he didn't. It has been alleged that Adolf Hitler may have used look- lookalikes as political decoys, though there is no evidence that he did so during his life, which uh, I, I would contend that. The Soviet Union has variously claimed that bodies resembling Hitler were found in the aftermath of the Battle of Berlin, during which Hitler allegedly committed suicide. The most prominent evidence is a Soviet footage of a body identified as Gustav Wheeler found in the garden of the Reich Chancellery. Weller was said to have worked in the Reich Chancellery perhaps as a cook. Conspiracy theorists have cited his body double as an example of alleged evidence that Hitler escaped Germany. The 1939 book The Strange Death of Adolf Hitler alleges that the Nazi party used four people as doubles for Hitler including the author who claims that Hitler died in 1938 and that he subsequently took his place. However the book was considered farciful in the year of its release and cannot be considered a reliable source. In 1939 the newspaper 
Newspaper Enterprise Association, NEA, while admitting that the book has practically no direct evidence of authenticity, defended it by citing the purported 1938 death of Julius Schreck as support for Hitler's use of doubles. The NEA claimed that Schreck was Hitler's chauffeur until 1934 and was riding in the back of a car being driven by Hitler and took a bullet from a would-be Hitler assassin who did not expect Hitler to be driving. In fact, Schreck died in May 1936 after developing meningitis. In late April of 1945, Stockholm's Free German Press Service circulated a rumour that a Hitler double named August Wilhelm Bartholdi, supposedly a former grocer from Plorn, was called to Berlin to be filmed dying on the battlefield in Hitler's steed. The German emigre stated that he will act as Hitler's trump card, creating a hero legend around the Fuhrer's death while Hitler himself goes underground. Hitler died in Berlin on April 30th, with his dental remains subsequently being positively identified. On the May 9, 1945, the New York Times reported that a body was claimed by the Soviets to belong to Hitler. This was disputed by an anonymous servant who stated that the body was that of a cook who was killed because of his resemblance to Hitler and that the latter had escaped. On the 6th of June 1945, the United Press reported that four bodies had been found in Berlin resembling Hitler, purportedly burnt by the Red Army's flamethrowers. One body was considered most likely to be that of Hitler. From 1951 to 1972, the National Police Gazette ran stories asserting that SS physician Ludwig Strumpfer had switched out a double for Hitler to help the dictator fake his death. In 1963, author Cornelius Ryan interviewed General B.S. and I'm going to butcher this last name, Telpachowski, a Soviet historian who was allegedly present during the aftermath of the Battle of Berlin. Telpachowski claimed that on the 2nd of May 1945, a burnt body he thought belonged to Hitler was found wrapped in a blanket. This supposed individual had been killed by a gunshot through the mouth with an exit wound through the back of the head. Several dental bridges were purportedly found next to the body because, Topachowski stated, the force of the bullet had dislodged them from the mouth, end quote. In his 1966 book, The Last Battle, Ryan describes this body as that of Hitler, saying that it had been buried under a thin layer of earth. Topachowski had said there were a total of three Hitler candidates which had been burnt, apparently including a body double wearing mended socks, which he described as being in remnants. Ryan quotes him as saying, there was also the body of a man who was freshly killed, but not burned. Soviet journalist Lev Vinsminsky details the darned sock-wearing double in his 1968 book The Death of Adolf Hitler. He quotes Ivan Kamilko, the commander of the Red Army's Smirsch unit, as stating that on the night of the 3rd of May 1945, he witnessed Visamindrel Hans-Erik Voss seem to recognise a corpse as Hitler's in a dry water tank filled with other bodies in the garden of the Reich Chancellery. Although Kamilko had some doubts because the corpse was wearing mended socks, he briefly speculated that it belonged to Hitler. On the 4th of May, Soviet officers ordered that the body double be filmed. The footage shows the double with an apparent gunshot wound to the forehead. According to Klemenko, later on the 4th of May, Hitler and Eva Braun's true remains were discovered buried in a crater outside the Chancellery, wrapped in blankets and reburied, then re-exhumed the next day after the double was debunked as being Hitler. In 1992, journalist Ada Petrova found the footage in the Russian state archives. The body double had been identified as Gustav Wheeler. In their 1995 book, Petrova and Peter Watson assert that Wheeler may have worked in the Reich Chancellery and occasionally stood in for Hitler as a political decoy. So now we have the argument that is against it. So presiding judge at the, and I'm going to butcher this again, Eisden Group and Trial at Nuremberg, Michael Massimo, wrote in 1948, there is not a shred of evidence that show that Hitler ever had a double. Massimo further states that the several close immediate associates of Hitler, whom I question expressly stated that Hitler never had a double. In his 1950 book about Hitler's death, Massimo wrote, 
and I quote, to suggest as some reasoning theorists have, including the noted author Emel Ludwig, that possibly it was a double of Hitler who died and was cremated is without any evidence to support it. About as rational as to say that Hitler was carried away by angels, it is inconceivable that Hitler with his self-assurance of superiority over any other human being would concede the existence of anyone even superficially an artificial duplicate of himself. End quote. Soviet war interpreter Elena Rishkazo, who safeguarded Hitler's dental remains until they could be identified by his dental staff, attributed the rumors of doubles to Soviet Colonel General Nikolai Buzan's pledge to nominate the discoverer of Hitler's corpse for the Hero of the Soviet Union Award, causing multiple potential bodies to be presented. Historian Peter Hoffman, a specialist on Hitler's security detail, similarly doubts he ever used doubles. Footage of the body double identified as Gustav Wheeler was presented as Hitler's corpse in a post-war documentary. This was corrected in a 1966 documentary. In September of 1992, Ada Petrova edited a stool of the footage into a Russian television broadcast, which was criticized for implying the body was Hitler's. A few days later, Benzminsky claimed that the double was separate from Hitler's body, which he reaffirmed that the Soviets had found elsewhere in the Garden of the Chancellery. In his 1995 book on Hitler's death, historian Anton Josh Himslater disputes the purported Soviet autopsy report of Hitler's body, which was published by Benzminsky in 1968. Josh Mansler argues that the Soviets never found Hitler's body, which must have been burnt to ashes. Josh Himslater quotes esteemed German pathologist Otto Prokop as saying the alleged autopsy report describes anything but Hitler. Similarly, historian Luke Daly Grove states that the Soviet soldiers picked up whatever mush they could find in front of Hitler's exit bunker, put it in a box and claimed that it was the corpses of Adolf Hitler and Eva Hitler. Also in 1995, Benzminski disclosed that his work had contained deliberate lies, possibly including the manner of Hitler's death. In his book, he claimed that if the dictator died from a gunshot wound, it was a coup de grace to ensure his quick death after he took cyanide, not a suicide by gunshot. In 1998, British author Ian Sayer received from an anonymous source what alleged to be a photocopy of a 427-page report from the U.S. Army's Counterintelligence Corps, CIC. Apparently containing a 1948 interview of Gestapo chief Heinrich Mueller, who was presumed missing in action in 1945, but claimed to have been retained by the CIC as an intelligence advisor and to have joined the CIA. According to Mueller's reported account, a Hitler double was discovered in Brissieux in 1941 and was seldom seen after July 1944, being sedated and kept hidden until April 1945. On the April 22nd, Hitler, Braun, and three of Hitler's associates departed by air from Horsstring Airport and were then flown to Barcelona. Barcelona. The double was later killed by a coupe de grace dressed in Hitler's clothes and buried. Joachim Lather notes that the plane claimed to have been flown out of Berlin was considered a total loss by the Luftwaffe in May of 1944 and the Jonkers Ju-290 supposedly flown to Barcelona had been grounded in that city since the beginning of April 1945. Thereby, the claims of the dossier are considered by historians such as Joachim Lather and Daily Groves as an example of created myths. In a 2009 episode of History's mystery quest, a bone-specializing archaeologist collected samples from a skull fragment in the Soviet archives believed to be Hitler's. DNA and a forensic examination indicated that the fragment, which had an exit wound from a gunshot through the back of the head, belonged to a woman less than 40 years old. On the same program, fringe author H.D. Borman asserts that Hitler increased his use of doubles after a 1944 assassination attempt. Borman claims that the darn sock-wearing double, whose ears he points out are different than Hitler's and allegedly were two inches shorter, was killed by the Germans on the 30th of April 1945. Citing these details, as well as the notion that the bodies of Hitler
Hitler and Braun were never located, and Soviet leader Joseph Stalin's claims that Hitler escaped to Spain or Argentina, Baum concludes that Hitler faked his death. In 2017, the National Police Gazette revived its decades-old pop boiler, defending such a possibility, and called on the Russian government to allow the jawbone fragment to be DNA tested to settle the matter. This is where things get really interesting, and is one of the many conspiracy theories that surrounds Adolf Hitler's escape to Argentina. We come to the Analco House, the very infamous Analco House. Hitler allegedly arrived in Argentina, first staying at Hasadina San Ramon, east of San Carlos de Bariloche. Hitler then moved to a Bavarian-style mansion at Analco, a remote and barely accessible spot at the northwest end of the lake. Citing a former Nazi president in Bariloche, the investigative series Hunting Hitler reveals a guard tower reportedly built by the same architect as the Analco House looking over the lake, situated closer to Bariloche than the house, as well as a destroyed bunker on the other side of the lake. Together, the two sites, in addition to other possible lookouts, such as a wooden building resembling a guard shack, may have provided a panoramic view used to safeguard the mansion, accessible from only the lake due to heavy forestation and long rumoured to have housed Hitler. Additionally, the hunting Hitler team cited the proximity of German scientist Ronald Richter's Peronbach nuclear fusion project on Whimmel Island. In a 2018 episode of Expedition Unknown, Abel Basti secured a rare excursion into the Analco House, revealing little except for some old kitchen utensils in the basement. Using a metal detector on the grounds, host Josh Gates located a Nazi coin, leading him to conclude that Nazis, but not necessarily Hitler, could have used the house. So, where are the likely places that Hitler could have gone post-war? Well, one of them was Argentina, because Juan Domingo Perón was an Argentine army general and politician, and after serving in several government positions, including Minister of Labour and Vice President of a military dictatorship, he was elected President of Argentina three times, serving from June 1946 to September 1955, when he was overthrown by the Revolución Libertadora, and then from October 1973 until his death in July of 1974. After World War II, Argentina became a haven for Nazi war criminals, with explicit protection from Perón, who even shortly before his death commented on the Nuremberg trials, and I quote, In Nuremberg at that time, something was taking place that I personally considered a disgrace and an unfortunate lesson for the future of humanity. I became certain that the Argentine people also considered the Nuremberg process a disgrace, unworthy of the victors who behaved as if they hadn't been victorious. Now we realize that they, the Allies, deserve to lose the war. End quote. Author Yukuigoni alleges that the Axis powers collaborators, including Paris Dine, met with Perón at Casa Rodasa, the president's official executive mansion. In this meeting, a network would have been created with support by the Argentine Immigration Service and the Foreign Office. The Swiss chief of police, Heinrich Rothmund, and the Croatian priest, Kran Solav Dragunovic, also helped organize the rat line. An investigation of 22,000 documents by the DAIA in 1997 discovered that the network was managed by Rodolfo Frude, who had an office in the Casa Rosada and was close to Yves Perón's brother, Juan Durate. According to Ronald Newton, Ludwig Frude, Rodolfo's father, was probably the local representative of the Office 3 Secret Service, headed by Johann von Ribbentrop, which was probably more influenced than the German ambassador, Edmund von Thurman. He met Perón in the 1930s and had contacts with generals Juan Pistarini, Domingo Martinez, and Jose Molina. Ludwig Fraud's house became the meeting place for Nazis and Argentine military officers supporting the Axis. In 1943, he travelled with Perón to Europe to attempt an arms deal with Germany. Now, again, listeners, 
I really apologize that, and I emphasize this, that I'm getting a lot of these names wrong. really do apologize, so please do forgive me for not getting these uh, names right. I sincerely apologize. After the war, Ludwig Frude was investigated over his connection to possible looted Nazi art, cash, and precious metals on deposit at two Argentine banks, Banco Germanico and Banco Tornquist. But on September 6th of 1946, the Frude investigation was terminated by presidential decree. Examples of Nazi collaborators who relocated to Argentina include Emil Dithertine, who arrived in May 1946 and worked on the Polaki jet, Heinrich Prepke, who arrived in 1947, Joseph Mengele in 1949, Adolf Eichmann in 1950, Austrian representative of the Skoda arms manufacturer in Spain, Reinhard Spitzi, Charles Leskat, editor of the G. Swiss Trout in Vichy, France, SS functionary Ludwig Leinhardt, and SS Hamptonfuhrer Klaus Barbie. Many members of the notorious Croatian Ustazi, including their leader Anton Pavlik, took refuge in Argentina, as did Milan Stojanovic, the former Serbian Prime Minister of monarchist Yugoslavia. In 1946, Stojanovic went to Rio de Janeiro and then to Buenos Aires, where he was reunited with his family. Stojanovic spent the rest of his life as presidential advisor on economic and financial affairs to governments in Argentina and founded the financial newspaper El Escomista in 1951, which still carries his name on its masthead. A Croatian priest, Krunoslov Draganovic, organizer of the San Drilamo Rat Line, was authorized by Peron to assist Nazi operatives to come to Argentina and evade prosecution in Europe after World War II. In particular, the Ustazi and Prevalik became a security advisor of Perón. After Perón was overthrown in 1955, Pavlik, fearing an extradition to Yugoslavia, left for Frankenist Spain in 1957. As in the United States with Operation Paperclip, Argentina also welcomed displaced German scientists such as Kirk Tank and Ronald Richter. Some of these refugees took important roles in Perón's Argentina, such as French collaborationist Jacques de Melu, who became an ideologue of the Peronist movement before becoming mentor to a Russian Catholic nationalist youth group in the 1960s. Belgian collaborationist Pri Dai became editor of a Peronist magazine. Rafaldo Frude, Ludwig's son, became Peron's chief of presidential intelligence in his first term. Recently, Goni's research, drawing on investigations in Argentina, Swiss America, British and Belgian government archives, as well as numerous interviews and other sources, was detailed in the Real Odessa, smuggling the Nazis to Perón's Argentina, which came out in 2002, showing how escape routes known as rat lines were used by former NSDAP members and like-minded people to escape trial and judgment. Goni places particular emphasis on the part played by Perón's government in organizing the rat lines, as well as documenting the aid of Swiss and Vatican authorities in their flight. The Argentine consulate in Barcelona gave false passports to fleeing Nazi war criminals and collaborationists. Thomas Eloy Martinez, writer and professor of Latin America studies at Rutgers, University wrote that Juan Perón allowed Nazis into the country in hopes of acquiring advanced German technology developed during the war. Martinez also noted that Eva Perón played no part in allowing Nazis into the country. However, not one of Eva's bodyguards was in fact ex-Nazi commander named Otto Scorzini, who had met Juan on occasion. Where else could Hitler have gone? Well, there is one other place on earth apart from Argentina that Hitler could have gone, and that was to Spain with Generalissimo Francisco Franco. So, 
Generalissimo Francisco Franco was a, was a Spanish general who led the nationalist forces in overthrowing the Second Spanish Republic during the Spanish Civil War and thereafter ruled over Spain from 1939 to 1975 as a dictator, assuming the title Cordilio. This period in Spanish history, from the nationalist victory to Franco's death, is commonly known as Francoist Spain or the Francoist dictatorship. During World War II, he maintained Spanish neutrality but supported the Axis, whose members Italy and Germany had supported him during the Civil War, damaging the country's international reputation in various ways. So the Spanish Civil War began in July of 1936 and officially ended with Franco's victory in April of 1939. Although it is impossible to calculate precise statistics concerning the Spanish Civil War and its aftermath, Payne writes that if civilian fatalities above the norm are added to the total number of deaths for victims of violence, the number of deaths attributable to the Civil War would reach approximately 344,000 people. That is a hell of a lot of fatalities. Despite the non-intervention agreement of August 1936, the war was marked by foreign intervention on behalf of both sides, leading to international repercussions. The nationalist side was supported by fascist Italy, which sent the Corpo Trump Viotrini. Later, Nazi Germany assisted them with support from the Condor Legion. Italian aircraft stationed at Majorca bombed Barcelona 13 times, dropping 44 tons of bombs aimed at civilians. These attacks were requested by General Franco as retribution against the Catalan population. The nationalists were opposed by the Soviet Union and communists, socialists, and anarchists within Spain. The United Kingdom and France strictly adhered to the arms embargo, provoking dissensions within the French Popular Front Coalition, which was led by Leon Blum, but the Republican side was nonetheless supported by the Soviet Union and volunteers who fought in the international brigades, with the Soviets taking the lead in recruiting them. Some, histor some historians, such as Ernst Knoll, have proposed that Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin used the Spanish Civil War as a testing ground for modern warfare, while others, such as Franco's Furet, reject this contention. Willard C. Frank Jr. says that Hitler was much more concerned throughout the years of the war with testing British metal than with testing his submarines, tanks, and submarines. Now we come to the relationship that Franco had with Hitler. So, in September of 1939, World War II began. On the 23rd of October 1940, Hitler and Franco met in Haidenay in France to discuss a possibility of Spain's entry on the side of the Axis. Franco's demands, including supplies of food and fuel, as well as Spanish control of Gibraltar and French North Africa, proved too much for Hitler. At the time, Hitler did not want to risk damaging his relations with the new Vichy French government. An off-cited remark attributed to Hitler is that the German leader said that he would rather have some of his own teeth pulled than to have to personally deal further with Franco. Franco had received important support from Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini during the Spanish Civil War and he had signed the Anti-Comintron Pact. He made pro-Axis speeches while offering various kinds of support to Italy and Germany. His spokesperson Antonio Tovar commented at a Paris conference entitled Bolshevism versus Europe that Spain aligned itself definitively on the side of nationalist socialist Germany and fascist Italy. Franco allowed Spanish soldiers to volunteer to fight in the German army against the Soviet Union, the Blue Division, but forbade Spaniards to fight in the West against the democracies. Franco's common ground with Hitler was particularly weakened by Hitler's propagation of Nazi mysticism and his attempt to manipulate Christianity, which went against Franco's fervent commitment to defending Catholicism. Contributing to the disagreement was an ongoing dispute over German mining rights in Spain. Some historians argue that Franco made demands he knew Hitler would not accede to in order to stay out of the war. Other historians argue that Franco, as the leader of a destroyed and bankrupt country in chaos following a brutal three-year civil war, simply had little to offer the Axis, and that the Spanish armed forces were not ready for a major war. It has also been suggested that Franco decided not to join the war after the resources he requested from Hitler in October 1940 
1940 were not forthcoming. So the real question is, did Hitler either go to Argentina or did he go to Spain? Well, new evidence has come to light that throws further doubt over the well-documented facts surrounding the death of Hitler in his bunker at the end of World War II. According to Senor Stefan Assetuna, who was one of General Franco's drivers during 1945 and beyond, he was sent to meet a plane arriving at the Madrid airport on the night of 30th of April 1945. He described the plane as of German origin and remembered that it arrived very late, probably after midnight. Following Franco's instructions, a passenger who had no luggage was transported directly to the palace. Further evidence is this. In May of 1945, the east wing of General Franco's residence in Madrid was sealed off from the rest of the palace and surrounded by a 14-foot high wall. No explanation of this construction work has ever been forthcoming, and stranger still, the staff assigned to this wing were all fluent in the German tongue. In May of 1945, Franco's medical staff ordered from Spain's largest pharmaceutical company a carton of 144 bottles of Dr. Costa's anti-gas pills. This order was repeated on a monthly basis up until October of 1947. Theo Morel, Hitler's personal physician, had introduced Hitler to the anti-fluctuance medication and Hitler had become so addicted to the strychnine base of these pills that he was known to swallow them by the handful. Suddenly, in May of 1945, General Franco has a need of the identical medication and the need continues unabated until 1947. Little bit mysterious that. Now, about 13 miles from the presidential palace in Madrid is a medical establishment known as the Clinico San Carlos. At the end of 1947, the director of this clinic, one Dr. Victor Vega Diaz, also held the title of President of the International Association of Cardiologists. In other words, he was recognized as the world's foremost heart specialist. Now, according to this guy and according to his diary, his personal one. He received a telephone call from the presidential palace in the early afternoon on Wednesday, November 1st of 1947 to examine a member of Franco's gardening staff. Now, it gets a lot weirder the more you get into this because why would the Spanish dictator contact the Hospital Clinico San Carlos when the larger, more modern and much better equipped Hospital Francisco Franco named in his honour was almost 12 miles nearer? Could it be because all previous medical needs of the general himself and the members of his entourage had always until the day been catered to by the hospital bearing his name and that the general did not want any record of Senior Adilupis added to his personal file. Dr. Diaz's diary describes a patient as between 50 and 60 years of age in an emancipated condition. His personal files record that he examined a patient in his late 50s or early 60s at the time Hitler would have been 58 years and 6 months of age and records that at 3.32pm he certified the patient's death from cardiomyopathy, a fairly basic heart attack and it appears that no autopsy was performed. At the top of the page, besides the word patient identification, the doctor had apparently written the words Senior Adilupis. Unfortunately, the doctor's personal notes do not elaborate further, and the Clinico San Carlos has relocated since 1947, and if any official hospital records ever existed, they are now lost forever. Doesn't it seem illogical to summon the best cardiologist in the world to treat a lowly gardener? I really honestly do believe that. Why, why would a lowly gardener be, have the world's greatest well-known cardiologist um, summoned to them. It, it does seem a little bit incongruous that that would happen. Despite lengthy searches of all cemeteries within reasonable proximity to Madrid, no record has ever been discovered which documents the burial or cremation of Senor Adilupis. No amount of searching has ever been to un ever been able to uncover a document anywhere in Spain which relates to Senor Adilupis. No birth certificate, no marriage certificate, no tax file or, or employment history, no registration on, on an electoral roll. Until November 1st, 1947, he 
appears not to have existed. The only mention of his name is in the notebook of Dr. Vegas, Vega Dias. What I find really coincidental is that lupus is actually Latin for wolf, which is the name that Hitler actually apparently favoured. Every Hitler loved everything to do with wolves. He named his yacht the Sea Wolf, his plane the Flying Wolf, and his two Fuhrer headquarters the Wolf Slayer and the Wolf's Den. So I find it interesting that he would have a name as Addie Lupus. Now apparently he used the pseudonym Mr. Wolf when he first met Ava. It, it might purely be coincidental, but this happens to be the form of address used in private by Eva Brunn. Apparently he used to call him Addie Lupus. So I find it interesting that the name that we have written down in this doctor's diary is Addie Lupus, because Lupus is Latin for wolf. I, I find that interesting. So really, the question remains, based on all the evidence, did Hitler escape, or did he die in the Führer bunker in Berlin and Germany in 1945? Well, sadly, we may never really know the answer to that question. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. And that was the first I knew of it, and with that I went home and told Don. He said, and he laughed. He said, don't be ridiculous. And I said, somebody shot him. This Apparently, he's been shot. And um, next thing we know, police were there and they all reckon Don must have done it because he closed the pub on them.